0: Well, hello, CMYK community, and welcome to another CMYK Talk Podcast. My name's Matt, and this week with this podcast, uh, we are diving into what probably for some has been the whole point of this series we've been in for the last few weeks entitled The Bible and Sexuality. If you've been with us from the very beginning of this series, um, then this is probably the one that you've been waiting for on some levels. Uh, If you haven't, welcome... uh, I'm just excited that you're jumping into this, Uh, but this has been a long journey and a long conversation for us to talk about some broader things, some bigger ideas that I think help shape us to get to where we are today. But today, what we're specifically talking about is these, what I am terming and what kind of culturally has become to be known as the clobber texts. These six or seven, depending upon how you look at it, seven different passages of scripture that uh, specifically in many current cultural context within Christianity. They come against the idea of homosexuality or any kind of sexuality outside of a heterosexual monogamous relationship. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at all of those texts. And what I want to do is talk about them and give you my reason for why uh, from the very beginning of this series. I've made this statement and continue to make this statement, and that is this, that I believe the scriptures invite us to fully affirm and embrace our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, and that this is a healthy and important approach to our spirituality And life. That these texts within the Bible that have been used to to deny or reject uh, anybody within the LGBTQ plus community, um, actually, I believe we've gotten them wrong if we're going to make them about that topic, but they're actually talking about something else. And so that's what we're going to do today. Um, Before we jump into it, though, I need to mention, as I have mentioned multiple times throughout this series, that this is a big topic, and this uh, talk probably more than Any other one that I'm giving uh, might demand some further investigation in conversation uh, with yourself uh, that you are actually taking these things up and and maybe digging a little deeper. My whole point with all of this is not that you take me, Matt Blakesley, and my word on these things and go, well, Matt said it, so it must be true, because that's not a good way to live, (laughs) but that you would be somebody that might uh, pick up a nugget here or two of the things that I'm presenting and that you uh, would be invited to dig deeper. There's so many texts and really great scholarly work out there that would help you think and process through these things on a much deeper level, because obviously, we don't have the time through one talk to to dive so um, deep into every single one of these passages and texts. So I'm going to do my best to kind of do these flyby by uh, understandings of what's what's going on and, and what I think is being talked about to hopefully help you uh, in a more beautiful way interact with this thing called sexuality and the Bible, which is the whole point of all of this. So as you can probably understand, we got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> and as I'm looking at my notes, Uh, I've got to be honest, uh, this, it, it, when I go through my notes, it feels really dry. And I'm like, I'm trying to figure out like, how do we, how do we whiz bang this up a little bit? And I don't, I'm just not going to try too much. I'm just going to go through things and try to get through it to help you understand some context. Uh, and then we'll kind of land the plane after a little bit. So I hope this isn't dry. I hope, uh, that this doesn't just put you to sleep. If it does, uh, you got something to go back to if you need to fall back to sleep, I guess (laughs) you're welcome. This is a free podcast. So the first text that I want to look at, it's found within the book of Genesis. And within the book of Genesis, there's this story about God making a deal with this guy named Abraham as to whether or not God will destroy the city of Sodom. And Abraham is very concerned about this city of Sodom because he has family there, this guy named Lot. And so God and Abraham they have this interaction of Abraham saying, please don't destroy the city. And God saying, no, the city's corrupt. It's just done for. I got to take it out. And Abraham has this bargain of, well what if there's 50 good men in the city? Will you destroy it then? And God says no. And they bargain back and forth until we get to this place of, well what if there's 10 good men in the city? God, will you destroy the city then? And God says for the sake of 10, I will not destroy the city. So that's the context that we have of whether or not this city is a good city. And in Genesis 19, it says this. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So they're there to see if the city's good or not. That's the context. And Lot, this this friend or this uh, family member of Abraham, was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw these two angels, these two men, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Lot is offering, offering hospitalities to these outsiders and these strangers. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and they entered his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So Lot is just pressing this idea of, no, you've got to stay with me. So there's this hospitality, this warmth, this kindness and generosity that's being shown through Lot. Plus, he doesn't want to see these men stay in the town square for some reason. Then, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and don't miss this, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Everybody shows up at Lot's house. There's something going on. This is a big statement that's being made about this city. And the all the men in the city, they called to Lot. They said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, this is kind of a biblical phrasing to say that they may have sex with them. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men in at the entrance. He shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known or who have not had sex with any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. What's happening here? this is a crazy scenario and a crazy twist. These men show up, all the men of the city show up to have sex with these two strangers. And Lot is saying, no, please don't do it. In fact, here, take my daughters instead and do whatever you want with them, but do not harm these men. Lot is arguing and presenting this horrendous idea of giving his daughters for the sake of hospitality, for generosity to these outsiders. In other words, Let me and my home take the hit for the sake of not seeing our guests and those in need suffer. I don't want to see that, Lot says. So let me suffer. Let my daughter suffer. Now, this is not a biblical case to say this is how you handle this situation, that it's okay to take two daughters and do... That's not it at all. It's painting this crazy picture of how much Lot is willing to fight for this hospitality and generosity towards these two men that they would not suffer under his household. I will take the hit. I will take the hit. Verse 9, But all these men said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So the town's response to Lot is to point at him and say, Hey, you even are an outsider. We're not going to listen to you. So the town is rejecting Lot and saying, who do you think you are? And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and with them shut the door. And they escape, to make a long story short. <laughs> now, what's happening here? Is the sin that's being talked about, is this a story about homosexuality and men wanting to have sex with other men? No, no. This is a story about hospitality, and this was a sin, this was a struggle, the problem of Sodom, and the fact that every man in the city and in the town showed up to not be hospitable and not welcoming, and be generous towards outsiders, but to want to take and to literally rape anybody that was not a part of them. And the Bible is condoning and condemning, or excuse me, condemning, saying this is wrong and this is not, oh Ezekiel, later on in the scriptures, actually brings up this moment in Sodom and says this, points to it as to why this text matters. Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 49 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. This is not a text about homosexuality. This is a text about hospitality and taking care of those in need around you, particularly those from the outside. That the Bible is making a strong case. Hospitality matters. Welcoming outsiders matters. And the town of Sodom, by not doing this and only being interested in their own gain and pleasure, shows how far that they had fallen and why God was justified in destroying this city. That's a powerful (laughs) message. And it has nothing to do with homosexuality. The second text that we see is found in Leviticus. And Leviticus uh, is known as part of this text of the law. In other words, the rights and wrongs, the ways that the people of God are to live. And in the midst of the law, the people of God are to make these statements and see these things. Leviticus 18 says, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanliness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. And then this is why all of these things are happening. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants." What's happening here? There's a list of things that are being spoken of that's saying, don't do these things. And why is it? Because these are things that are found within this culture that is now a neighboring part of your culture. And God is saying, this whole law is about living a different, more beautiful way in the world around you. Leviticus 20 says if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death if a man lies with his father, my father's wife he has uncovered his father's nakedness both of them shall surely be put to death their blood is on them if a man lies with his daughter-in-law both of them shall surely be put to death they have committed perversion their blood is upon them if a man lies with a man male excuse me if a man lies with a male as with a woman both of them have committed abomination And they shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is a depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. And then it goes on from there. This law is speaking to, it's important to see, the reality of their day. There are cultures and people around them that have these certain practices that are no big deal. It's just what you do. And this law is being brought to these people of God, to the Israelites, as a new, better, more beautiful way to interact within the world. This is where laws come from, is saying this is how we're going to do it as a people. Yes, it may be a thing in other places, but this is how we're going to do it. In other words, these laws, they don't just come from a vacuum. They come from a place of observing it somewhere and going, we're going to do something different. This is not okay. And our laws, even in the United States of America, they come from a place of observing something potentially and going, we don't like that. We don't want to see this happen anymore. And so there's some really interesting laws. When you look at Montana law, did you know that it's illegal to have a sheep in the cab of your truck without a chaperone? Like, that's a law. You can't have a sheep in your truck without a chaperone. What does this mean? It means at some point, someone had a sheep in their truck without a chaperone, and it didn't go well. I want to know where that law came from. I want to hear that story of a guy with a sheep in his truck, and there wasn't a chaperone, and it didn't go well. What what was that? What did that even mean? And so now all of a sudden, it's like, well, give give the sheep a chaperone, and everything will be okay. This law comes from somewhere, and the same is true with these Levitical laws. They're coming from somewhere, particularly people from the outside. And these laws in Leviticus, as a response to the cultures around them, are God's call for his people to live uniquely as his people. So there are things being seen and experienced in the culture that God is communicating against. And if you look at what we just read, a lot of them have to do with the way women are being treated. And just taking whatever, woman, whenever you want, however you want, these things are not okay. The way adultery is, adultery is handle, handled, don't be careful with how you go about it. It's not okay to just sleep around like you see within other cultures. And particularly what we see... Because of the, the reference of this other god, Molech, in the earlier Levitical, Leviticus passage, we, what we know, historically and culturally, is that sex between a man and another man many times had sacrifice and worship of other gods attached to it. And these scriptures are saying, don't go there. In fact, this word abomination that says for a man to lie with another man is an abomination that we hear and see on you know, protest signs all over the place. There's an interesting thing behind this word within the original text of abomination. John Boswell puts it this way, the Hebrew word translated abomination does not usually signify something intrinsically evil like rape or theft that actually is discussed elsewhere in Leviticus, but it's something which is ritually unclean for Jews, like eating pork or engaging in intercourse during menstruation, both of which are prohibited in these chapters there was a cultural way of seeing this interaction with, with a man having sex with another man that had nothing to do with someone's sexual orientation and their desire to live in a committed relationship with another man had every everything to do with these sexual sacrificial practices that are seen within other cultures. And God is saying there's a different and a more beautiful way for you to live. That's what this is about. In other words, there's a culture around you and you are to live in the most beautiful way within that culture. Not just adapt to what you see everybody else doing, but to figure out and to understand what is the most beautiful way for us to go forward, which is the conversation of scripture in general. Text number three, we're moving as fast as we can. Again, there's a cultural norm that's found, and followers of Christ are consistently being invited to live uniquely within this new, better way kind of culture. And within the third text, which is in fa- found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we have a community or a church that is dealing with disputes. And Paul, the writer of this text, is trying to say there's a better way for you to go about this, because what we know is that this community is taking each other to court. They can't solve or settle their disputes among themselves. They have to go to court, and it gets really hairy and really messy really quickly. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, starting in verse 5. He says, "'I say this to shame you. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers?' But brother goes, against, goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. In other words, this message and story of Christ of understanding humility and understanding breaking yourself open and pouring yourself out for the suffering of the world rather than fighting to take what's yours and get what's right. All of those kinds of things that are found within the court system, which is many times what that can be about in these brother against brother kind of states. Obviously, there's injustices that the the court system is needed. I'm not saying that for everything. Okay. Paul is saying, come on, this Jesus way, there's a better way for you to live in humility, for you to live in forgiveness, not revenge and out to get what's rightfully yours. Verse nine, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. In other words, you are now entered into this more beautiful way to live in this life. Now, here's what's fascinating about this. There are many words, Greek words, which is what this original text is in, Greek words Paul could have used to come against a blanket term or idea of homosexuality, but he doesn't. And where we have this English translation that we've brought to it, this word homosexuality, the two Greek words that are brought and used here are malakoi and arsenikoipae. This first word, malakoi, <clears throat> it means to be soft or passive. And arsenakope is this word that's first used in the scriptures here by Paul, and it's actually this really rare word within the Greek language, and there's been so much conversation and debate about what does this word mean. But there's so much so many other contextual places that we find this word arsenakope mean meaning within the Greek to talk about shrine prostitution. And even this other Jewish philosopher that was a contemporary of Paul, when he uses this word arsenikoipae, which is not one that is found all over the place, it's just very rare, he's even talking about and speaking to shrine prostitution. Again, if Paul wanted to use a word that was blanket homosexuality, he could have used that word within the Greek, but he didn't. He used these words of malakoi, soft or passive, and shrine prostitution, arsenikoipae. Now, what we know is that within Roman culture and custom, for a man to sleep with another man had many different cultural contexts, but one of the most pervasive is that there would be men having sex with slave boys and that this was something that was seen as a, a, an act of dominance and power that showed your masculinity. And so there is this understanding, whether it's shrine, prostitute worship, or whether it's men having sex with slave boys, that Paul is coming against this idea and saying, yes, these are cultural things that are happening, but this is not the way that we are to live. There's a more beautiful way to go about it. And to that, I would say yes, because many times in Roman cultural culture, particularly in Corinth, it's Roman soldiers and slave boys, and there is this sex trafficking ring that's attached to it culturally. And Paul is speaking against this by saying this is not something that we're to be a part of anymore. Again, nothing to do with a man desiring to be in relationship, long-term committed relationship, loving relationship with another man and their sexual orientation. That has nothing to do with it. Text number four. Again, Moving through it is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, another letter that is spoken to a community, and this is what it says. Now, We know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, the men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which whom I have been entrusted. This is much of the same wrestling match of 1 Corinthians. These same words are being brought to the table. And so we've got to understand it within that cultural context. But this time, there is this word enslavers added after the sexual piece. So he's talking to sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And one of the things that's found within good scriptural theology and wrestling with the text and exegesis is understanding these lists of what's right and what's wrong and understanding that there's groupings and they are brought together in a certain order for a certain reason. And so what we see is is that people that are enslaving little boys for sex within this context of men having sex with boys is something that is not okay. In other words, um, you could reterm this, and as Robin Scoggs, a theologian and scholar says, a proper way to take the Greek and what's happening culturally and to pull this out and say it with English, what Paul is saying and coming against is saying, it's not okay for males who lie with, with sex slaves and slave dealers who procured them. This is not okay that these are connected things happening here. Again, nothing to do with our 2018 current context. Text number five. Now, this is a text that's found, this is kind of really obscure, and I thought about not even going here because for many people, it's like, well, of course that doesn't have to do with homosexuality. But for many people, it is used as this clobber text and, and coming against it. So text number five is found in the book of Jude, which is a really, really tiny, small letter written in the New Testament. And it's a text encouraging right out of the gates where the writer says that his goal is to have, that there may be mercy Peace and love be multiplied in you. This is what he's hoping to see happen for this community. And what we know, according to this text, is that there are people who, as he quotes, perverting the grace of God and that they are living out of sensuality, that they're missing the point of what all of this is. In other words, you're indulging in your own appetite, your own lusts and desires at the expense of others and even yourself. We know that to just live, to live just driven by what I want all the time has the potential regularly to be, have negative effect on those around us, on our, on our planet, and on ourselves. If you've ever eaten nothing but Taco Bell for like 10 meals in a row, you know, as much as I want it continually, this is not good for me. And to live just by sensuality is something that can break us down. And so in Jude chapter, or excuse me, in Jude verses six and seven, it says, and the angels who did not, he's describing people that have gotten it wrong and lived by sensuality. He says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. In in other words, left where they were supposed to be, what they were supposed to be doing. God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, referencing this text from Genesis, the first one we looked at, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, this understanding of a sexual immorality, I think a bunch of men trying to have sex with guests within a home, yes, that is something that is sexually immoral. This is not okay to force yourself on these guests. But the, the hang up for some people is this idea of pursued unnatural desire. And saying that what Jude here is talking about is the unnatural desire of a man wanting to have sex with another man, that it's just unnatural. Well, if you actually read this text and see what's happening, it's not talking about unnatural desire of men having sex with another man. It's talking about angels and men having sex. And the Bible is saying this is something that is not natural. It's talking about and referencing even this moment that's found in Genesis chapter six in the story of Noah's ark that there's this kind of biblical narrative of the angels of God wanting to have sex with the men or women, like that this was something that was not okay because angels and men. So, whatever you think about that, and, and wherever you are in the craziness of that potential. Uh, occurrence (laughs) or interaction. This is not about two men. Again, committed relationship 2018 and what we're talking about. This is something completely different. Angels having sex with men, the unnatural interaction of that. And last but not least, here we go. We're looking at Romans chapter one, which for many people, and honestly for myself included, can be some of the most cumbersome uh, stuff to get through because it feels like the most direct. But this is Romans chapter 1. This is Paul's introduction to this letter that is so profound on so many levels, this entire letter and book of Romans. But this is Paul's introduction, okay? Here we go. A lot of text here, but I hope you hang on. Romans 1 verse 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore... God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... why did I giggle? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, in the midst of that list. Because Romans is describing someone that is outside of the Jewish community and Jewish faith. It's describing someone that is living a godless life, and Paul is using a whole bunch of language and lists and imagery and ideas to paint this picture of someone that is just the worst. And so if you can imagine, it's like a political leader stirring their base and playing all the hits and getting everybody on board to how much those guys are the worst, they're the problems in the world, and if they just went away, everything would be better. This is what Paul is doing. He's stirring up his base because then he does this twist in this moment that's found right after these words. Romans 2 verse 1 says, Therefore... You have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another one, on on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul is saying you can get stirred up about all the problems in the world and point at everybody else and see see that they're the problem, they're the problem, they're the problem. And Paul does this twist and saying, and you are among that list you are among any one of those things And whether you're looking at the list or whether you're looking at these imageries that Paul is saying, he's inviting everybody to see that we are all on the same page and that you are no better than anybody else. He's coming against this idea that we would stand in judgment against somebody because we ourselves are worthy of the same judgment because we all struggle and have pain and problems and issue and evil and covetous and malice. We all deal with these things. And Romans is a text ultimately. If you understand what's happening, it's this incredibly powerful book about reconciling Jews and Gentiles and seeing that within this work of Christ, everyone is welcome, Everyone is on the same page and the desire to point at the outsider and say, you're the problem and you're the issue is actually you pointing at yourself because we are all on the same page and all on the same level and all welcomed into this grace to move towards love and peace in a better way. So Paul is creating this picture that we would see ourselves within that picture, not that we would see someone else. And so this text that is typically used to point at someone within the LGBTQ community and say, you're the problem with the world, or you're someone that has fallen away from God, what Paul is actually doing is saying, you can't do that, because you're someone that is in the same place as someone that has fallen and broken and messy, and you have issues as well. Do not use this text to speak against somebody, but it's a text to speak against and to ourselves. Now, when we look at this specific picture that Paul paints, when it comes to men having sex with other men or women having sex with other women and the problem with that or the unnatural uh, relation of that. Again, it's important to note Roman culture, and what Paul is pointing at, is something that they have a visual picture of, many of them, and it's people going to shrine prostitutes, temple worship, engaging with male or female prostitutes for the sake of idolatry, and Paul is saying this is something that is wrong and broken. Again, not what we understand homosexuality or the LGBTQ community to be within 2018, but there's some specific language that I think it's important to also look at, because he says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. So dishonorable passions. Is it men having desirable uh, passion for another man? Is that dishonorable? Well, this word that Paul uses, dishonorable, is "atomia." And it's not about something morally wrong. it's about something culturally shameful. In other words, you are shamed if you live in this way culturally. It has nothing to do with your morals. It has everything to do with what the culture would say at the time. And it's the same word, atomia, that is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the dishonor that is found in a man wearing his hair long. So that's what's happening. There's something cultural that you are shamed if you're someone that goes to a shrine prostitute and has sex with them that's a problem. That's a cultural issue of the day that you're shamed in that way. Okay, I can understand that and see what Paul is pointing at and talking about that. And then later on, he uses this word, contrary to nature, that women have exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, what we know about the ancient culture is contrary to nature, particularly when it came to the role of women, is they were there for procreation. They were there to be baby mamas. Now, we've grown and progressed as a culture. Woohoo! That's not all we see or the biggest thing we see uh, that a woman brings to the table. That's a good thing. But what we know is that this is the only time within the scriptures that lesbians or the idea of of a lesbian is something that is actually brought up or talked about. And what we we know is unnatural relations for a woman to have sex with another woman, it does not bring about a baby. And so an ancient culture would have a problem with that. Now, what we know is sex and our sexuality is not just about procreation. We have grown and progressed and evolved as a society that there's something more here. And In fact, up until the 4th century in our current history, up until the 4th century, many scholars saw this passage speaking against, against any, any kind of sexual act outside of traditional vaginal intercourse for the purpose of procreation. So honestly, if you want to take the Bible and you want to make sex about that, that you only have sex for the sake of making a baby and that's the only time you have sex, that's a route and that's a path that you can take. But even most Christians don't take that path and take that route. But that's what this text for many centuries was actually pointed at and talked about. But this is why it's bringing men into the picture as well. Because men have abandoned their natural relations of having sex with women for the sake of procreation. Because that's their duty as a man. This is what I'm here for, right? Part of the reason. Uh, And they've left it for this temple worship and lust. On top of all of that, Paul uses the same Greek phrase, contrary to nature, when he's speaking of the Gentiles joining in community with the Jews later on in this text. This is what this book of Romans is about. Gentiles and Jews being found on the same level, on the same playing field, that it's not about us and them. It's about this third way of all of us mm-hmm. together, and that everybody would be found on the same level. And Paul uses the same phrase of contrary to nature. <laughs> that is the same thing when we do what Christ is inviting us to do. So it's... It, Again, shaky ground for us to say that it's about something that we're dealing with here within sexuality in 2018. This last word, shameless acts, that they were committing shameless acts with one another. This word translated simply means indecent. The picture of what's happening within most same-sex acts are found within temples. It's something that's indecent. It's not okay. It's something you should cover up. It's something you should not flaunt and show everybody it's men founding, uh, acting out in only passion and lust, not love and sacrifice. This is something that's indecent and should not be seen. This is not speaking of a loving, sacrificial, committed relationship. So as we land the plane, again, a lot of stuff, longer podcast. I hope you're okay with that. But as we land the plane today, those are the six texts <clears throat> that are typically pointed at. And uh, when I look at this, there's a question for me. So why have we culturally, if, if honestly, in all of my research and, and understanding, not trying to bend the text, not trying to do theological, you know, like hula hoop jumping through to make sure that I get everything right so that my worldview is correct, but to just honestly understand what the text is saying, why is this still such a contentious issue, issue if, this, if these are what the text is saying and this is the context within it? Well, I have a couple thoughts on that. And I think it's important to note that these thoughts are are not meant to generalize anybody who has a a disagreeing stance on where I find these scriptures to be or what they're talking about. But I think um, while someone would disagree with me and probably or maybe not find themselves within the camp of why I think this is such an issue, I think it's important to note that there are some things that we see throughout human history as to why potentially this is such an issue in the way that it is within Christianity. I would argue that the same things we've seen over and over and over again throughout history with scripture is the same thing that's happening today. What we know is there's a progression that's been happening with humanity, that we're learning more and more of what it looks like to have a more beautiful shared life together as human beings. That we've progressed out of tribalism in some ways. We're still not there. But we're not trying to kill other people that aren't in our family or don't look like us anymore. We're trying to figure out how we can, can live in a more beautiful, cohesive way together. The way that we view and treat women... The way that we see other races and the idea of slavery. These are all things that we've progressed in. Or even the endless pursuit of more and more and more at the expense of those in need or at the expense of our planet. These are things that we as humanity are progressing in. And we're asking questions. And we're saying there's got to be a more beautiful way. But what we see throughout history is anytime these progressions come, tribalism, women, slavery, racism, the endless pursuit of more, the Bible is used regularly as a tool to speak against that progression. And typically, it's because of those in power wanting to maintain the status quo. And so if you have this rule book, even though it's not a rule book like we talked about, if you have this divine God-given book, that speaks your worldview and your idea that you get to stay in power, that your worldview gets to be the same, then of course you're gonna fight for that. And so what we see, again, tribalism, women, slavery, racism, endless pursuit of more, divorce, whatever it is, people in power working to stay and keep their worldview and their power in their own camp. It's a sad thing, but an undeniable thing Undeniable fact to see that the Bible regularly is used as a tool against progression. And it does have moments where it is pushing us forward, inviting us into now into a more beautiful way, as I believe the scriptures are inviting us into. But we can't deny the fact that it's been used for the opposite as well. And what we also know is that the average person, the average population as a whole, isn't a fan of change. Change is uncomfortable. And when you have a worldview or a narrative that's been handed you about how things work, to poke the box, to see that begin to crumble, it can be scary. And it's something to be avoided for many of us. And so for many, the thought of a sexuality outside of what's known or normal, it's uncomfortable. We don't know how to feel about it. We don't know how to think about it. For some, it's just icky And the only reason is because they haven't really gone there or thought about it. They've only been handed a narrative of, this is the way the world works. These are boys, these are girls, and this is how they're supposed to always interact. And so anything different or outside of that, it just has this natural tinge of, I'm not sure about that. And so we're going to naturally run to things and narratives that reassure our confirmation bias, reassure us. And the Bible is one of those things, I believe, that is continually used to just reassure us in what we feel comfortable with. But what I believe is ultimately the Bible is making a case over and over and over again to be uncomfortable, to see the outsider, to see the other. And even if we were to just look at these clobber texts and what they are are actually saying, the Bible is inviting us, these stories are inviting us to be someone of hospitality towards outsiders, even at the expense of yourself. And to not live a hospitable life, an open, welcoming life towards those outside yourself is to come against the heart of God. It's not okay. It's the story of Sodom. The Bible is inviting us to be someone seeking the better way outside of what the cultural norm is. So where there's cultural norms of greed, and lust, and unforgiveness, manipulation, anger, revenge, all of these kinds of things, that we would be a people that say, no, there's a better and more beautiful way, and the scriptures are continually inviting us into that. The Bible's inviting us to not use your power for the belittlement of others. Do not turn others into objects of pleasure and strip them of their humanity and divinity. Don't live driven by sensuality and desire. There's an outcome to your actions and that outcome has the potential to hurt yourself and those around you. Do not do that. See what is good, true, and beautiful and pursue those things. Don't ever stand in judgment of outsiders, the scriptures would say, because you are one Of them. We are all in this together. We all are offered this invitation into a life with the divine and each other. And this is about leveling the playing field and seeing each other as equal. This is what the scriptures invite us into. And these can be incredibly uncomfortable things, especially right now in our day and age. But I believe the Bible and these clobber texts are not clobber texts, (laughs) but to actually do the opposite. To see and embrace someone wherever they are, to welcome outsiders, to care for them, to care deeply about how your actions impact someone else's life. And by rejecting someone, that is one of the most devastating things that you could continually do. And so I'm just one man, but I do want to say to those of you that have um, experienced these clobber texts as clobber texts, I'm sorry. I don't believe that that's the heart of God. I don't believe that's the heart of scriptures, and that's not my heart or our heart as CMYK. And one of the things that I know, independent of where you land on what these scriptures say, I think it would be undeniable to say some of the most gracious, loving, patient people are those within the LGBTQ community that continue to watch news story after news story propagate and talk about how a hurricane or a disaster came because of their homosexuality. And they continue to love and show grace and peace on a level that is just unprecedented on so many ways. That your willingness, those of you within the LGBTQ community that continue um, to offer grace, continue to have conversations with people that adamantly disagree with you and want to throw these Bible verses at you over and over and over again is some of the most Christ-like, beautiful, powerful work that I've seen happen in my lifetime. And so, yeah, I just have some thoughts on the Bible and there they are. But you are doing something so much more profound and needed in our world. And so thank you. Thank you for shaping my life in a more beautiful way. Thank you for inviting me um, to interact with the divine and others in a more beautiful way. Your work matters your life matters and how you choose to respond to a culture that may be rejecting you right now it matters and it's mattered to me so thank you for the amount of love and grace and patience for me personally and for humanity as a whole i hope to catch up to you in showing mercy and grace to those around me i love you um And wherever you are, whoever you are, uh, whatever you need, if you need anything, please reach out. Let us know. We're here for you. Sure love you. Um, We're going to be back wrapping up this whole series next week. So thanks for sticking it out. (laughs) I told you it's going to be a long one, but I hope it was good. So we'll talk to you later. Thanks.